Great to see you all this morning. Welcome to Fellowship. I'm just kind of add my welcome to what Carl's already done. My name is Rob, one of the teaching pastors here. And also, I would just like to say, I'd love to meet those of you that haven't met yet. I, I say this every week because I really mean it. It's hard for me to get out to the arcade after the service. So if I just haven't met you yet, come forward sometime. Just say hello, introduce yourself. I can't promise I'll remember your name on the first time, but I really do want to get to know you, your family, uh, as this is a, a new role for me here. But I'm looking forward to that. And I will say this, I have so enjoyed these 40 days that we've had together. Uh, you know, Carl already mentioned, it's a significant weekend for us because we're wrapping that up. And what happened on Friday night into Saturday morning was just spectacular, I believe. Um, as the people of God came together and said, hey, we're here to pray. We're here to worship. We're, pre- we're here to seek God's face. And so what I thought we would do, even before I get into the text and get into the sermon this morning, is just for us to spend a little bit of time sharing with one another. And here's the question I want you to consider. And, you know, we're only going to have time for four or five of you to share. But, and I, I know it's kind of hard to speak in front of a, a group this large. But I really want to ask a few of you to share because I think the body needs to hear the impact that this has been having on us in the 40 days. So here's the question I'd like for you to consider. Describe what's been most meaningful to you during the 40 days of prayer and fasting together. What's been most meaningful to you? So you might talk about something from this past Friday, Saturday, from the all-night prayer. You might talk about any time in that 40 days. What has God done in you, through you? What's been meaningful to you as you've prayed every day or missed some days, which is okay as well? Uh, Maybe you go all the way back to that opening night of worship that we had. So I've got a microphone up here. I'm going to come down around. We've got a couple others in the back, and we're just going to share together for five minutes. We'll put five minutes on the clock and just see what, um, what comes out of this Time. So just raise your hand if you'd like to share something briefly. What's been most meaningful to you during the 40 days? Who'd like to start? All right, thank you. And by the way, introduce yourself before you share. Good morning. My name is David, and uh, I cannot help but not share this. The last 40 days have been so awesome. Uh, and so the two things that I think about are the first night. Uh, my wife and I got to bring our two sons in, and um, the, the song that we sang about pushing back the enemy, my, my sons got to stand up. They're six and five, and so they're just starting in their you know, journey faith, and we're trying to encourage them, but they stood up, and they had their hands raised. It was amazing. If you guys were there, just seeing their little hearts uh, mimicking what my wife and I were doing. We we're holding our hands up, but just thinking what heaven would be like if we left today and just seeing their little hearts and their hands raised was amazing. And then the bookend of the other side, um, I've been on a journey uh, with some guys right here who uh, literally have become our, our small little church, our community group and, and a group that I'm a part of. And uh, we came at, at, you know, with our wives at nine and then came back at two in the morning. And I'm telling you, God was there. I, I'm, not, I'm not telling you uh, what I probably the homework assignment was here. Uh, but I'm just telling you, my heart was so full. And what we got to experience was God's presence right there. And so we were walking around and literally, women, we want you to know that we are praying for y'all. Moms, dads, we were interceding for y'all. Um, uh, kids, we were praying for their salvation. And, and literally, God was giving me visions in my mind of your children being baptized, uh, my kids being baptized, coming to faith, um, people getting raised up, you know, um, people who needed money. I, I, I just saw God providing for your needs. Um, 
And so I, I couldn't help but not share. I mean, this was so powerful. Um, and so my heart has just been so full um, that uh, quite honestly, in the last 10 years, I have not been more encouraged and empowered and emboldened just to speak about Jesus than I have now. So I hope you've been encouraged the same way, but I, I couldn't help but not share. Amen. David, thank you. <laughs> Encouraging. This is why we share. Give others courage in a sense. Who, who else would like to share? Got time for a couple of more. All right. My name is Joanne. I've been through the 40 days and the last three Sundays, today would be the fourth Sunday, that something has been remarkably different in our services, just normal services like today. The presence of the Lord, at least for me, has been remarkable and amazing. I don't know how to describe it, but I don't like to cry in front of people, but for no reason at all, I'd feel like crying. And he would speak to me and he would explain the scriptures to me. It's been a remarkable 40 days for me. Amen. Joanne, thank you for sharing. And you can always cry with us. That's okay. Yeah. Great. All right, we've got one right up here. Introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Tucker. Is Micah Deering in the room? No. Okay. Micah? No, no. Not, All right. Not uh, well, so the first night of worship, it was Micah Deering, myself, and Dawson, and Dawson Hazen, if anyone knows the Hazens. And we were sitting all together, and there was a man who tapped one of us on the shoulder, and he just told us how much he was encouraged by us being there and appreciated how we wanted to be here. And that was something that was really important to me because I'd never had that happen. Like, it takes a lot of courage to just talk to someone you don't know and much less encourage them and be like, this is something that encourages me that y'all are here. And that was something that was really important for me and something that I saw that I'd never seen before. And Tucker, you're what, remind us what grade you're in. I'm a sophomore. Okay, sophomore in high school. And I'll say this, and, and thank you for sharing. It, it does encourage us to see our children, our students. You know, David referenced it over there, his kids. When, when, our, when our kids get it, when our kids engage, oh, there's hope for the future. Praise God. So thank you for sharing that, Tucker. All right, anybody else? We have time for one more if somebody wants to share. All right, Joe, right in front of you on the edge here. Great. Hey, my name is Ingrid. Um, my favorite part was the confession week, which is a strange thing to say, I think. <laughs> um, confession is such a weird thing. And I found such surprising grace in like writing down like the sins of the week or just what was on my heart with the Lord. Um, I thought it was a really good learning experience to to come to the Lord with the baggage and have that be okay and actually feel so free after sharing that in a place where, you know, in most of life, as soon as you, like, unload your baggage, that's when you're not free because everyone's, you know, watching it or has that on your mind. So that freedom was impeccable. Outstanding. Outstanding. Yeah, we could actually... We could, we could do this all day. It might be better than my message, actually, um, because I love hearing those stories. And, you know, you guys talking about 
what it was like to worship together as a body, what it was like to pray together as a body. Knowing when that text came in every day, I mean, I don't know about you. I, at first, I was kind of annoyed, you know, 6 a.m., 6 a.m., 6 a.m. It was like Saturdays. I'm trying to sleep in a little bit. But that, that first day it didn't come, which was a Saturday this, yesterday, I missed it. You know, I missed it. And then someone told me last night, they were like, well, you know, you can set an alarm on your phone to pray, you know. It's like, I guess I could. <laughs> but we had, uh, I think we had somewhere around 2,500 people engage at some level in it. And I don't know how many of that 2,500 uh, that were receiving the messages, either through text or email, were actually praying every single day. You know, I, I know we missed some days. I know some of you were probably in and out and in and out, and maybe a couple of you tried the first week and dropped off after that. Here's what I want to say to encourage you. No matter how much time you devoted to that, whether it was one day or whether it was all the days, whether it was one minute, there was not a moment that was wasted in that. Because when the body of Christ praise. When the body of Christ essentially says, Lord, I need you, which is actually what we did for 40 days, right? Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. The body of Christ is empowered. Uh, that, that's how this works. This church is actually made up of all of you individually. That's what the church is. You know, it's not the preachers, not the productions, not the stage, it's not the staff. It's the body of Christ. So as you all are seeking the Lord, we are seeking the Lord as a church. And so there was not a moment of that that was wasted. Well, we want to get into our text this morning. And so turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4. I'm going to pick it up at the end. Uh, I won't lie to you. This is a hard passage. All right? So I'm, I don't know any other way to do, like make a 180-degree turn from like celebrating what God's done to 180 uh, uh, for 40 days, rather, to talking about sin. Okay, but that's where our text takes us today. We want to be faithful to that. And I'll tell you a little bit more about why I think this passage is difficult. Let me first kind of um, catch you up to where we are right now in our study of Acts. So chapter one is about the call of the church, right? Acts 1-8, you'll be witnesses to the remotest parts of the earth. That's the mission of the church. Chapter two is about the birth of the church. The Holy Spirit arrives, you know? Chapter two and three, we see the birth of the church. The Spirit's on the move. Chapter four, we see resistance to the church. We have an enemy that actively wants to stop the mission that Christ has begun in us and through us. And then last week at the end of chapter four, if you were here, Lloyd, Lloyd just did a really great job of talking about this picture of a body that's of one mind and one soul sharing all they have. And, uh, you, you know, Lloyd does these wonderful illustrations, you know, these tangible things. And so we passed out these baskets and you either got an A or you got an N, an A for abundance or an N for need. And you were able to kind of like play this little game of meeting the needs of the body. And then Lloyd said, okay, now we're going to make it real. You've got this card in your program. And if you have a need in real life, write it on this card, put it back on the board on the back and we're going to see if this body can meet some needs. So we got a picture of this board. It's right now back in the arcade. So as you leave, I'm going to encourage you, stop by this board. Uh, every clipboard has at least one. Most of them got three or four or five kind of stacked up on each other. Um, wouldn't it be great to see God just move through this body to meet the needs on the board? So go up there. If you have a need and haven't put it on the board yet, those are blank cards right there on that little table you can fill out. But I really want to encourage us this week to take a need, to meet a need. I pulled three of them off. Let me just read these to you just to give you an idea of what's on that board. This person says, our family van needs an AC repair for two Longer, longer trips to see family. And, you know, I'm imagining, say there's probably holiday trips coming up. And this person would not have put this need on the board if they were not able to afford this repair. 
So if that's something that you could help out with, you know, for some of you, that's just no big deal to be able to meet that need. It'll bless this family tremendously. This person says, we need a housekeeper. If you need a job and want to keep the house going for us, we want to hear from you. This person says, hey, we're willing to pay, but we need somebody we can trust. We'd love it for it to be somebody from this body that would help us in this. If that sounds like maybe something you could look into, there's the need. Uh, and then the last one I'll read um, to give you an idea just about how practical some of these needs are that are on the board. My son needs transportation to and from FSM, which is our Wednesday evening student group. We live in a subdivision off of 96 near Church in the City. So here's a family that they want their son to be able to participate in FSM. They don't know how to get him there. It's like some of you live in that area and you're like, okay, well, we go to and from there. I mean, could you meet this need? And there's literally dozens of needs like this. You know, some are financial, material, some are help. You know, we, we've had some widows just say, I, I just need some help doing stuff around the house that, that I, I can't do without, et cetera. So here's an opportunity for us to be the body of Christ. Now, if you want to meet any of these three, come see me. I'm going to keep these with me up here. Just come down and say, hey, I've got one of these I can meet. I'd love to, for you to do that. If you, if you can't meet any of those three, stop by the board on your way out and see if there's one or more on there that you could meet. And uh, let's be the body of Christ together. So that was last week. And then we come right out of that beautiful passage with like an icky, terrible, heavy passage. We're gonna talk about the sin, or the, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, which are a couple in the early church of Jerusalem and the consequences of that sin. And so we're just gonna dive into the text. Um, I've got a lot of ground to cover and we've already devoted... I think properly, a significant amount of time to our sharing time. So I'm gonna talk fast, if you'd forgive me in that. I wanna pick up the text in verse 36 of chapter four, because you're gonna see a contrast between one man who gave generously and then another couple that, um, that went about a different way. So look at verse 36 of chapter four. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas, okay? His familiar name to us in church, by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, now, why would the author go out of his way to just talk about one man's generosity? Well, two reasons. One is Barnabas is gonna go on to be a, a very important figure, a missionary figure in the church, right? I think what God was doing here in, through his generosity was he was sort of unlocking and unleashing something in Barnabas to not just be generous with his property and his finances, but be generous with his whole life, like serving Christ. And this is the, I think, the seed of that that we're gonna see grow throughout the book of Acts. But the other reason is Barnabas is gonna be the contrast with Ananias and Sapphira. So let's keep reading in verse one of chapter five. But, there's a word of contrast there, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Okay, so far just like Barnabas, verse two, and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land while it remained unsold did it not remain your own? And after it well, was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Pause there. Let me explain what's going on. At first glance, it looks like, all right, well, they're just not giving 100%, and they're getting called out for their, um, I don't know, their, their lack of generosity, okay? They're, 
their inability to kind of give it all like Barnabas did. That's actually not what Peter is calling them out on. You know, he's saying, you know, why, why did you lie? Why did you deceive? And as we're going to see, we'll go through, the, through verse 11 here in a minute. You're going to see the story play out and you're going to realize, no, no, no. Their, their actual sin that Peter's calling out was not the fact that they lacked generosity. It was the fact that they deceived the church and the leaders of the church. So what had happened was they'd said, hey, we got, you know, whatever it was, we got... $300,000 for this property. And here it all is, $300,000, boom. The reality was they'd gotten $450,000 and they'd kept 150 back. It's not a big deal to keep it back. What was the big deal was that they represented as if they'd given the whole thing. You're gonna see that even more explicitly as we go through, all right? Now, let's see what happens um, immediately after this. And, and I'm just gonna tell you guys, like, what we're about to read is dramatic. It's alarming. It's even difficult to interpret and apply. And we dare not shy away from it. It's in God's word. Let's read it in verse five. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up, and carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price, okay? So she has an opportunity here, to be honest. And she said, yes, that's the price, all right, which was a lie. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet, and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. I guess so. <laughs> now, the passage raises a lot of questions. And honestly, like, especially in modern church context, we're, we're like, man, I don't want to mess with that text. Maybe we should skip over that text, you know? No. We dare not skip over to the hard places of Scripture. Okay, this is what God would call us to do is lean in and say, God, what, what do you want us to hear from this? What do you want us to learn from this? That's where we're going to go this morning. I want to say just a couple things uh, first before we dive into some specific lessons from specific verses. Uh, first of all, we know that this is not normative. Okay, can we just say that? Like, I've never seen this happen, you know? I've been a pastor for a while. No one's dropped dead at my feet, you know, when we're talking about their sin, all right? It's not normative. Not only is it not normative for today, it's not even normative in the book of Acts. Okay, we're gonna go through the whole rest of Acts covering the first 30 years of church history. This never happens again as far as we know. So when you see something in the Bible that doesn't fit a pattern, you have to ask yourself, why is it there? What's God trying to do in this event? What's he trying to teach the church? What's he trying to teach our church? Now, the big picture, clearly, this passage is about sin. Okay, you know, it doesn't take a... a master's degree in theology to pick up on that, right? This text is about sin. And as I've thought about this, I'm like, it's actually, not, what does it say about what it's about? It says sin is serious, okay? That's what's underlying this text. Sin is serious. And I was thinking about how much we need that message in our context. Think about how our culture talks about sin. Um, the, the words that have traditionally over time been used for sin have been turned 
and twisted and relegated to things that they actually were never intended to mean. Let me, let me give you like a really easy example. You're going to hear this word a whole lot in the next two months, naughty. You know, a generation ago, you didn't want to be naughty. You know, somehow now you want to be naughty. So, you know, I'm mostly nice, but I'm a little bit naughty, wink, wink. You know, it's like, what, what happened? What happened to, to sin? Um, uh, how about the word wicked? You know, it's used in all kinds of contexts. It just it doesn't have the wickedness. You know, man, that's wicked. That's wicked. Man, that's, that's cool, right? Um, my daughters were watching a, a Disney movie a couple weeks ago, and they had this whole song about wickedness, and they were kind of celebrating a little bit, you know, dancing around and singing. And, and you, know, you know, as a parent, you watch this. I don't want to be one of those kinds of parents. It's just like, you can't watch Disney movies, you know? I don't want to be that kind of parent, but here's what I did. After it was over, I said, hey, girls, listen, I want to talk to you about something. I want to make sure you know that wickedness is real and it's not something we celebrate and it comes from an enemy. You know, and so they're like, what, what do you mean? You know, we had this kind of conversation. Even the word sin itself, I was in the grocery store this week and I'm seeing things that are sinfully delicious. It's just like, man, I just want some of that. You know, give me that. So you see, you see how our culture has said, no, no, no. We don't want to deal with a seriousness of sin. So we're going to take the words associated with it. We're going to downplay them. We're going to turn them around. All right? This, this is what's happened. Don't think that that's not also in our church. It just is. This is the water we're swimming in culturally. You know, we can't not swim in that water. This is a piece of our culture. And I think it snuck in the church as well. So we need to talk about the seriousness of sin. We need to preach about the seriousness of sin. I dare not back down from what is clear in God's word. And so this is where we're gonna go this morning. I wanna talk about three lessons that I think are, are in this text. Three lessons about sin, and I'll, I'll point to the places in the text where I think we find these lessons. Guys, all of these are weighty, okay? All of these, I think, if you actually grasp onto it, are gonna be a huge help to you and me in our struggle with sin. Lesson number one, the sin in our lives plays out in the context of a cosmic spiritual war. The sin of our lives plays out in the context of a cosmic spiritual war. Like I'm talking about my sin, your sin, like your sin from this week, this weekend, you know, little things, private things, so-called. Our sin is playing out in the context of a cosmic spiritual war. Let me show you this from the text. Look at verse three, okay? But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Guys, I've got to imagine Ananias would have been like, what are you talking about? Satan never came to me. And from an Ananias' perspective, he's just a little bit selfish. I think he wanted the status of Barnabas. He's like, I, you know, it, it doesn't matter that we actually got $450,000 for this property. We're just going to say we got $300,000. We're giving it all. Aren't we generous? You know, he didn't see Satan's work in this. Peter's pulling back the curtain. He's like, listen, bro, there's more going on than what you see. You see, this is what's happening in this text. God's enemy, okay, Satan's real. God's enemy saw a soft spot in the congregation of Jerusalem and used that as a point of entry into the church. Do you think it's any accident that this happened immediately after this season of the church of everyone being of one heart and one soul meeting everyone's needs and then boom, deception. Where does that come from? Peter's calling it out. It's not just you, man. This is Satan that has 
used you as a point of entry into this body. Now, Ananias was a part of the church and his wife was too. What that meant was they had aligned themselves with the mission of God. They were being used as weapons against the mission of God by Satan. You see, that's what's happening at the cosmic level. And we're like, man, that just sounds like a comic book or something. Do you believe the word of God or not? You know, this is what Peter's actually saying is happening. Now, why would our sin be any different, right? Why would our sin somehow not have anything to do with the cosmic spiritual war? That's just in the Bible, man. That's just in the first church. You don't think that the enemy of God still wants to thwart and hijack the spread of the gospel? You don't think that's true? You don't think that you and I aren't part of that? Well, I'm just the one little person in the church, Guys, there's something here that we need to apply to our lives, right? Your sin, my sin, is part of this greater spiritual battle that's going on. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me go a little bit deeper. And before I do, let me just say this. Don't think for a minute that Ananias and Sapphira were just pawns used by Satan against their will. They might not have been conscious of where the temptation was coming from, but they made some willful choices. Look at verse 4. Peter says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, no one forced you to sell it and give the money. Look at this next question. After it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, you didn't have to give any of it. Or you could have just given a portion and that would have been fine, but just be honest about it. And then the back half of that, uh, why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. By the way, just a really quick side note, we need to remember if we're in Christ, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, Satan has no control, no power over you unless or until you cooperate with him, you see. You know, Satan could not force Ananias and Sapphira to do this. They were not just pawns, but he saw an area of weakness and he's exploited it and he's found a way into the body of Christ. Now, uh, the, the elephant in the room on this passage is why was God so harsh? Like, why do they have to drop dead? Like, that's just, you know, that, that, that paints a picture of God that we don't like, right? That, that God would just be like, man, you did one little thing wrong. See ya, you know, stop, you know, your heart's gonna stop beating and you know, all these kinds of things. This is where it actually helps to put on the lenses of the bigger cosmic spiritual war that's going on, okay? If you followed so far, you realize, okay, Satan's actually been involved in this. That's what Peter's saying, all right? So if that is true, and we believe the Spirit actually gave that revelation to Peter to call that out. It's in God's word right here. If that's true, then what is actually happening is God's actually saying, all right, Satan, I see what you've done, and I'm gonna put an end to it. I see what you've done. You think that you can inject a cancer into the body of Christ through this deception and I'm gonna take out the vessels that are carrying that cancer. I'm gonna do a surgery on this church. I'm gonna take out the bad cells that are now injected with this cancer and I'm gonna preserve the body of Christ through this act and I'm gonna allow the mission of Christ to continue. Now from Ananias and Sapphira's perspective, you might be thinking, well, that's just unfair. Nobody's perfect. There were other sin going on in the church at the same time, right? Why was this one particular one called out? Well, listen, I don't want to make this point too hard, 
But assuming Ananias and Sapphira were actual believers, and there, there's a debate between scholars, but I'm firmly on the side that they, that they were. They're a part of the body of Christ. There's nothing in the text that says they weren't actual true believers. If they weren't, you'd think the church would want to say that because it would make the church look better if they weren't actually true believers. Right? I think they were true believers in Christ. Assuming they were, what happened from their perspective was they were confronted with their sin and they were immediately in the presence of God where through the blood of Christ there is grace and there is forgiveness and there is life eternal. Their life, you know, I, I don't want to downplay death, you know, because death is hard, death is separation, death is, is, is not the way God intended for creation to be and we'll talk about that in a little bit. From, but from their perspective, they actually were, were, were taken home. It's like God saying, look, Ananias and Sapphira, you've been deceived by Satan and you did something that's harmful to you and harmful to the church and before you get yourselves in deeper in this lie, deeper in this sin and you do more damage, I'm taking you home to be with me. Now come and rest. Come and rest. I, I, I think... I think that's what's happening. God is simultaneously thwarting this strategic move of Satan and he's rescuing, in a sense, the ones that open themselves up to this attack. Now, how do we apply this lesson to our lives? We've got to view sin in the context of the greater spiritual battle. You know, Paul reminds us this in Ephesians. Our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness and the heavenly realms. There's a lot at stake with our sin. There just is. You think your sin's just personal to you? It's not just personal to you. It affects those you care about. It even affects this body. You're thinking, Rob, that's a stretch, man. My, my personal private sin has nothing to do with this body. That's not true. Let me tell you what happens when you sin. Anytime you sin, you step out of the path of spiritual flourishing and vitality that Christ wants for you, and you step into the shadows and in the shadows, you begin to shrink. You begin to shrivel. You, you lose a little bit of the capacity to love. You become a little bit less patient. You might not even realize this. But when you are caught up in habitual sin, you begin to become less of the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God that you are created to be. Who suffers because of your shrinking back? Your wife, your husband, your kids, your friends, your neighbors, this body of Christ, which is only as strong as the individuals who make it up by the Spirit of God, you see. You see, there, there's no private sin. Like, the people you care about may not know about your sin, but they're being affected by your sin. You think, men, that you, 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 you can be engaged and involved in all this sin over here and love your wife the same way as if you're walking uprightly? No. Women, you think you can like harbor all this you know, resentment and anger and all these things that you're, you're stewing on. It doesn't impact the way that you mother and the way that you, you engage with other women and the way that you love and serve your family. No, you see, there's no private sin. Now, um, the sin in our lives plays out on this context that's bigger than we know. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, and, and, and I gotta move through this one. Lesson number two, deception is at the center of every temptation and sin you face. Deception's at the center of every temptation, every sin. Uh, real briefly, don't gloss over the fact that Peter's emphasis was on the lie, the deception. You know, he didn't go after the stinginess. He didn't go after the greed. Instead, he went straight to the lie. Verse three, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Verse four, 
You have not lied to men, but to God. Verse seven, why is it that you've agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? What was the test? The test on the spirit of the Lord was, does the spirit of the Lord see? Can the spirit of the Lord be lied to? Can the spirit of the Lord be deceived? That's the test that Peter's relating. Now, throughout the scripture, Satan is called the deceiver, right? Over and over again. Uh, Jesus, in fact, actually describes Satan as the father of lies, right? So what that means is every lie, every deception was birthed, you know, from a spiritual perspective by the father, the conceiver of lies. Um, we see this theologically. If, if we do a flyover scripture, start in the garden. Um, what was the temptation that Satan in the form of a serpent brought to Eve? He took God's word and he lied. He twisted it a little bit. He said, you know, God didn't really say that. You know, that's not true. See, he's using deception. What's the temptation that Satan brought to Jesus Christ in the wilderness during Jesus' temptation? He, he took something that was kind of rooted in scripture, but he twisted it around. He deceived. He kind of misinterpreted it. And what did Jesus do in response to every single temptation? He took truth. He took the truth of scripture and laid it over that temptation and said, no, 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 brother. That's not how it works. It's this. It's this. This is what's true, you see. This is always true, men and women. Deception is at the center of every temptation and sin. That's how Satan works. Lies are his only tool. It's all he's got. So let me apply this to some common sins that are, are in the room, like that, that, that are in the room right here and in the room out here. What is the deception underneath the sin of greed? Well, the deception under the sin of greed, which is, I think, something almost all of us struggle with. The deception is that we need more in order to be whole. That's not what Scripture teaches us. Right? You don't need a little bit more in order to be okay, in order to be fulfilled, in order to be satisfied. What's the deception underneath the sin of anger? You know, don't raise your hand. Anybody in this room struggle with anger from time to time? Golly, all, you know, most, most everybody. What's the deception underneath the sin of anger? That you have the right to be treated in a certain way. And when that way is violated, that you harboring that anger will somehow heal your pain. Okay, so, you know, we, we're furious and we stew and we try to keep it all in because I think my anger is going to medicate my pain. It doesn't. It doesn't. And you don't have the right to be treated in a certain way. All right? That, that, that's some of the deception that's underneath the sin of anger. How about the, the sin of lust? What's the deception underneath the sin of lust? All right? Is it not that the, the man or the woman or the image or the thing that you're lusting and that you're desiring, that it will fill your hunger? Guys, you don't have to repent of your hunger, but you got to look out there and say, oh, actually, that image, that thing, that habit, that person, that improper relationship, that's not going to fill me. That's a lie. It's not going to fill. It's not going to make, make me the craving that I feel to be cared for and intimate and, and respected and loved and adored, that, that's not gonna come from these other things. You see, lust doesn't fill you. What's the deception under the sin of pride? This is the last one we'll talk about. Um, here's the deception under pride that you need to place other people beneath you in order to feel approved and accepted. So you always need to be just a little bit smarter than the other people. You need to feel a little bit more righteous. You know, you need to feel a little bit more powerful. You need, to, you need to be just a little bit, you know, a little bit stronger than other people. See, this is the sin of pride. Why do you have the need to feel a little bit better 
than other people around you. Well, is it not that you've bought the lie that you need that in order to be approved? Man, you don't need, you don't need to be above other people in order to be accepted and approved. You see, God's word deals with each of these lies. And so since Satan operates in the realm of deception, that's his only weapon, that's his only tool. How do you go to battle with your temptation, guys? You go to truth. This is why we teach God's word the way we do every Sunday. This is why we encourage you to be in groups of men and women opening God's word together. This is why we encourage you even on your own to be studying God's word is is how else will you grab onto the truth that you need in order to counteract the lie that you've believed in that sin. And and, and every sin, go home and think about the areas of sin you think about most and then dig dig down. There's something, there's a lack of belief. There's a, a lie underneath that that you bought into. And, and what, what does um, Jesus say? Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you, finish it. The truth will set you free. Okay, I've got to keep moving on. That's lesson number two. Deception's at the center of every temptation and sin. Last lesson. This is a big one. The destination of sin is always death. The destination of sin is always death. Sin always terminates in death, always, always. And you're like, all right, Rob, um, where are you getting that from this text? Well, (laughs) pretty clear, right? Um, Their sin was called out, they dropped dead. Now, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But, But listen, it's always true that the end of sin, the final destination of sin is death. It's always true. It's true not only of physical death, it's true of other kinds of death. Let's start with physical death and then we'll get to the other kinds of death. Um, literal physiological death, you know, like, like cells decaying and dying, that was not part of the original creation. All right? Uh, um, God created something that was not in decay. And then where did sin come into the creation? Well, when, when God said there's this one tree, he told Adam and Eve, you must not eat of the fruit of it or you will surely finish it. You will surely die, right? So then they ate, and from that point on, it was just a matter of time of when they were gonna die, not if they were gonna die. And so at that moment, literally, there's decay that comes into creation, and it's felt not just in human beings, it's felt all through creation. So the the fallen state of our earth right now is a result of sin. The destination of sin is always death. So fast forward from the Garden of Eden to Ananias and Sapphira. I'm imagining what might have been written on their death certificate if they had a death certificate, right? Name, Ananias, date of birth, whatever. Date of death, whatever. Cause of death, sin. Here's the point. The same thing could be written on your death certificate. Cause of death, sin. You weren't designed to die. Okay, you see, sin is connected to death. There's like this this very consistent, all throughout the scripture, cause and effect. You see death, you know sin was involved. Now, let me back up and say, I'm not talking about like when, um, you know, so-and-so died in your family that they died because of a specific sin like Ananias and Sapphira did. Remember, that's not normative. That's not normative. I'm talking about the broader theological perspective. There's no death, theologically speaking, without sin, theologically speaking. So be careful. I'm not making a one-to-one, you know, uh, you know my grandma died last year and she must have been in sin. No, that's not what I'm suggesting, okay? You guys with me on this? All right. Now, 
The principle is true that sin always leads to death, but it's not just true of physical death. It's true of all kinds of other deaths as, as well. Let me explain. Um, think about the, 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 when innocence dies. I, you know, at, some point, at some point in life, like, man, there's just a death of, of innocence and you know, whatever category you're talking about, right? Caused by sin. Um, think about when there's a broken trust in any kind of relationship or any kind of family. Why? Caused by sin either a, a lie or, or a broken promise, et cetera. Uh, think about the death of integrity. We try hard to walk with integrity and we, we stumble. There's, there's a death that happens in sin. Uh, think about death of an opportunity that was squandered. It's like, man, he could have been so much. God could have used him in such, in such a way and yet because he was trapped in this or because he made this terrible decision, there's a death of that opportunity. Um, death of a relationship, death of a family, um, things getting broken up, things being misshapen and misformed. Is it not all from some type of sin? It is. Sin always leads to death. Listen to how James describes it in James chapter one. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown up, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. So what James is saying here is like there, there's a chain reaction that once that train gets going, it's gonna end in death every single time. Now, think about why God may have allowed this, not only to happen, this event, but also why would he preserve it in our scripture? Is because it is a vivid, dramatic, stark example that there's a cause and effect between sin and death. The church couldn't ignore it. They couldn't miss that point. You see, in fact, I would, I would say it this way. The problem for us is most times the connection between sin and death is difficult to see because it's not always overt and it's not always immediate. But do not be deceived, James is saying. It's there. The power of sin in your life for many of you is that the cost is not often immediately apparent to you. And so one of the things I've been praying for in this sermon through this text is that God would open our eyes to see the connection between sin and death. Men and women, sin has the scent of death on it. So don't think that, you know, a, a private sin, there's not something that's dying there. You know, they, they, I'm gonna go over here and I'm gonna sin for a little while and, and nothing's gonna happen, nothing's gonna die. It's just not true. There's a, a, a broken connection maybe between you and another person that you're called to be honest and upfront with. There's just a, a subtle distance that you grow away as you're in the shadows. And we, 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 I don't need to cover ground I've already covered early in the sermon, but there's, there's death. Sin carries the scent of death. And, and here is, is, is one of history's clearest examples of that, right? I think it's kind of a gift to the church to remind us, to wake us up. The connection between sin and death with Ananias and Sapphira was clear, immediate, impossible to ignore. And that points us to something that is true even today that we need to remember. Now, for all of us, we're all sinners. Right? God in his grace allows us to exist together as sinners, rubbing shoulders with each other, wounding each other, not being fully honest with each other, and yet by his hand of grace, by his hand of grace, he still preserves. He often still allows us to have blessing. <laughs> you know, God is not a vindictive God. And we're gonna talk about grace in just a minute because I promise you, I'm not gonna leave you without hope. But before we get there, I have to say this. 
many of us, maybe most of us, I, I know this was true of me before I studied this text this week. Many of us have lost sight of the connection between sin and death. We're trifling with sin, with naughtiness, with wickedness, right? For most of you, it's been quite a while since you've taken your sin seriously. And if that's the camp you're in, okay, first of all, just be honest before you and God that that's the camp you're in. It's been a while since I've really taken my sin seriously. Then the next thing I want you to encourage you to do is I want you to look around your life and I will tell you there are things in your life that used to be alive that are currently dying or dead because sin always leads to death. It just does. It's time to recognize the deception. It's time that we would come back to our senses. I, I plead with you. Uh, you know, someone that doesn't have any power over you, that's not how it works for me to be a pastor. I'm a servant of you. I'm a shepherd of you. I'm called to teach you God's word and what I see clearly in this passage. I plead with you, step into life. Step away from death. Repent, turn. Well, 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 for your own sake, for the sake of those who love you, for the sake of those that you love, and for the sake even of our church. Now, how do you do that? How do you step away? How do you turn? How do you repent? I, uh, number one, you just need to be honest before God. All right, it's gotta start there. It's just gotta start. I'm gonna give you actually an opportunity just you know, not, nothing that anybody will know. Just at the end of the service, through a prayer and the quietness of your own prayer with God, just an opportunity for you to be honest with God about, about your sin. That's number one, right? Number two, you need to ask for help. You need to ask for help. And for some of you, that just means asking God for help, right? It's like, be honest with you, God, about where I am, and now I need help. For some of you, you're like, no, I need to actually ask, I, I need help from, from a fellow brother or sister. This is why God's given us the body of Christ, is it not? that we'd be honest with God, then we begin to be honest with other people and that we would receive grace and help, not just from God, but from the body of Christ, you see. This is part of what we're called to be for one another is um, we incarnate the grace of God and the truth of God in our relationships with fellow believers, all right? So we need to be honest with God and we need to ask for help both vertically and horizontally. Uh, here's where I want to land, hope, hope even hope amidst the seriousness of sin. Just as scripture is absolutely clear that sin leads to death, scripture is also just as clear that Jesus came for the purpose of resurrection, for the purpose of life. So it's like, check this out, guys. Death is all the world is known from the beginning, you know, from the chapter three of Genesis all the way until Christ's resurrection. And then it's like, Beep, 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 boop. What happened there? That didn't fit the pattern. Life emerged. Death's defeated. And what does Jesus say? He's like, resurrection's not just for me. I've come so that you may have life and have it to the full. A step toward Christ is always a step toward life and away from death. Like, what was Jesus talking about when he said, I'd come that you might have abundant life? You know, the enemy comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come so you may have life and have it in abundance. What was he talking about? What does abundance life even mean? We don't have time to unpack it. I'll just say this one thing. It is the opposite of death. Jesus has the aroma of life. Any step, any move toward Christ, you know you're gonna have grace, you know you're gonna have forgiveness, and you know things are gonna be starting to put back together. There's gonna be a sense of reversal. Can there be a sense of reversal in your brokenness? Absolutely. In your marriage? Absolutely. 
Like, can you come out of the shadows and actually begin to breathe oxygen again? No one is too far in this room. Step toward Christ and receive grace. That's why he came. And he didn't come just so you can be in heaven forever. Absolutely, that is true. But he also came so that you could begin having life, even now. But you gotta step toward him. You gotta turn. And I'm gonna pray for us as a body. So I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band to come out and start playing. Um, I'm gonna start the prayer and then just give you a little bit of space. It won't be real long, but literally everybody in the room, you know, you don't have to write anything down. You don't have to verbalize anything that's between you and God. And I wanna encourage you just to start being honest with God about your sin and the seriousness of it. Begin to name what God knows is already true. He was just wanting to remind you through his word. And then start asking for help, you know? Let your confession bleed into supplication, right? Start asking for help. So bow your heads and, and we'll just begin to pray together. Our Father, I, um, I care about this body. And so I don't hold back what you've put in your word. And it, it strikes us in a way that feels heavy and it's heavy for me very personally in my own life, you know. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would accomplish your purpose through your word even right now. And I pray that men and women in the room would be able to be honest with you about where they are and the hardness of their heart, their stubbornness, their apathy. <laughs> There's some in the room right now that are even like carrying this like almost this disgust, this, this sneer that, that, that anyone, that, that even you, God, would have the right to tell them where they need to change. And I pray, Father, that you would break through that by your spirit. And so now, congregation, I just invite you in this moment to talk to God, be honest about areas of sin in your life that are hard for you to be honest about and ask for help. Let's do that right now. not leave them in a state of shame, that you would clothe them with grace, that you would assure them of your forgiveness, that they would feel a sense of nearness, that, that even the act of confession itself would actually be one that you would use to just remind them, oh, how much I love you, oh, how much I, I've been waiting and longing for you just to name what's true so that I can enter into that struggle. And, and I pray, Father, that you would be quick to help as I know you will. And I pray, Father, that there would be some freedom that would begin to, to start to happen as, as we, together as a body, overlay truth on top of these lives, lies that we've been deceived by. I pray that you would encourage men to come together with, with fellow brothers in Christ and, 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 and incarnate the grace and truth of the gospel. I pray that you would encourage women 
to do the same. I, I pray that husbands and wives would be able to come together and help one another and be present and real and friendships and parents and children. And God, only you can do all this. Certainly not a message, not a sermon, not a pastor. Only the one that whom we look to, our Father in heaven, our Savior Jesus, and the Spirit that indwells us. And so by the name of Jesus Christ, we bring all this to you. We pray in his name.